Welcome to Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. As always, I'll be your host, Lee Greenwood, and I'd like to say welcome to this episode. This week, we're having another sit-down chat, this time with uh, Mike McDonald. Mike's based over in New Zealand now, but you'll tell from his accent, that's not where he comes from originally, originally out of Scotland, and he's got an extensive offshore career working uh, on oil platforms and uh, FPSOs, etc., all over the world, and various crafts and boats. Also a IRADA instructor and IRADA assessor, so we can dig into that a little bit as well. Uh, as always, if you can just uh, subscribe to the podcast, that will be amazing. Get the updates on uh, when the new episodes come out. And if you could share this with your friends, anybody you know in the rope access community who might like to hear about some of the people that we chat with or some of the tips and some of the tricks, check us out on Facebook, Rope Access, Tips, Tricks and Chats. And as always, reach out to us if there's anybody who you think we should chat to or anything you want to hear about, definitely let us know. We're always open for having a chat and see what you guys need. Well, let's get straight on with uh, Mike McDonald. So, uh, hi, Mike. Thanks for taking the time to come in and have a chat with us. How are you doing? Yeah, real good. Real good. I'm pleased to be here. Excellent. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for taking the time, bud. Um, I'm just going to crack in on my uh, standard three questions. So, uh do you want to sort of tell everybody listening in how you got into the wonderful world of rope access? Yeah, um, I was in the army and was leaving the army, and they they gave us thousands of pounds and said uh, go find another job. So I was I was into climbing at the time. Um, none of this namby pamby rock climbing, so it was like real man's alpine Scottish winter mix stuff, and. Uh, I saw an advert for Irata in the back of Climber magazine. Um, I have no idea if Irata even still advertised, do they? Um, I don't think so. Some companies might, but uh, I don't know if they do it in the back of yeah. magazines anymore. Yeah, yeah, this was an actual Irata advert. So went to their website, found out who did the training, and uh, ended up ended up doing it through a resettlement company. You know those old companies who used to sort of give you everything for all of your resettlement money? <laughs> um Back in the early days, they were actually, they weren't criminal. Um, whereas I believe it's a bit more of a, a, there's a lot of people doing it nowadays. Um, but in those, yeah, I got um, a rope access ticket, offshore medical, survival, you know, all that good stuff that you first need when you're going to go somewhere. And uh, started from there, 1998, I think it was, did my level one. Um, did it through Cannes in Aberdeen. Can't remember who the instructor was, but uh, pretty sure it was Sandy Allen who was my first assessor. Um, yeah, the, I found the course to be, well, I think we have to say it's also the level one course is wildly different. In 98, it's wildly different compared to what we do now with people. But um, I found I had a bit of an aptitude for it and still absolutely shat myself when I saw the assessor walk through the door. Um, yep. After that, I uh, just put my CV out to absolutely everybody and anybody. Um, and at the time, when you're in the army, um, they still give you a year on army pay uh, to find a job. So CV went out to everybody, door knocked everybody, and I got a job with Real Inspection, with Russell Ritchie. Um, and started working in their yard there. Um, and around about that time, 
around about the same time, maybe I've been there six months, um, Pete Phipps, he came in as the rope access manager because um, they were starting up a new a new, new rope access division, if you like, and did the testing of steel wire ropes. Um, um, what else did we do? Oh, a lot of um, drill tool inspection. So yeah, I was I was used as the trainee for that. Just a lot of wire wheel scrubbing with a wire wheel. Um, stayed with him for a year, and then unfortunately they had to let me go because that was the first oil downturn I'd ever experienced. And uh, yeah, that was that was one of those holy fuck moments. Because, uh, you know, it's like you come from the army, a relatively secure job at the time. Um, thought I was nailing it one year in, just an oil downturn and everybody, well, quite a few people in real got their papers. And uh, fortunately for me at that time, I had just finished my eddy current qualification and real called me back as a contractor to go work in Holland for three months. Um so yeah, that was a real good job. First time I'd ever been at any real height. It was about 150 odd meters. Um, I think I was a level two at this point. Yeah, and that was it. Nice. So that was was that um, was that offshore or where were you sort of working in those days? Uh, a lot of guerrilla rigs. So offshore um, for real, it was a lot of uh, drill pipe inspections. I did the odd structural inspection, um, all offshore floating structure. Um, jack up semis, things like that, and uh, quite a lot of drill rigs. Then when I went out, sort of out on my own, if you like, when I was, I want to say when I was forced out on my own, <laughs> um, you know, like I'd lost my job from real because of the downturn. So uh, that that's when I had to learn really quickly how to be a contractor. Um, was taken back for real's job in Holland, and then sort of started making friends with companies. Fortunately, again, due to the eddy current, I had eddy current. That was, oh, I'm sounding old now because that was almost at the beginning of eddy current. <laughs> the beginning of it becoming portable, you know, when it could go on ropes. Yep, I remember those days. Yeah, so because um, it was quite a rare qualification, I had there was quite a, a need for me, if you like, um, and started working for a lot of uh, what are really big names, I suppose, now, EM&I. Rig Blast. Um, I'm trying to think. There was a few other little lifting gear companies I did work for. Yeah, it was good fun. So this was all uh, the standard sort of UK uh, limited company, but you were a one-man band and you're just basically a gun for hire. Is that sort of how it was working? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but learning as you go, because it's. I think we should stress, like, back in those days as well, um, it was I want to say relatively easy to get a job offshore um, because rope access was sort of a thing that people needed and they were experimenting offshore. They were experimenting with how to use you. So, you know, like I did painting, um, high pressure water blasting. You know what I mean? Because uh, they, they really wanted level twos and threes in those days to go out yeah. and do jobs. So they would give you a high pressure, ultra high pressure water blasting ticket that would put you on the course. Um, but that's changed now. Um, it's pretty hard to work offshore nowadays. So I was lucky. It's just everything at the right time, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So uh, you sort of said that when you went over to Holland, you were uh, a level two. So you 
what did you do? Your 12 months and then jumped on a, a level two course or is that yep. sort of how it worked? Uh, you sort? At the time we were on, you had to do six months and 500 hours to become a level two. But yep. uh, as you'll know, it was because the industry was so small in those days. Um, before your employer would pay for you to go and do another rope access ticket, they insisted that you got good feedback from everybody you worked with. You know, they didn't want to waste their money on you. So uh, I was, yeah, I mean, I was told, no, you have to wait 12 months. You're too keen. Um, don't just collect tickets and don't rock it up, you know. Um, you don't know enough. So had to do an additional six months, um, which I'm really grateful for, to be honest, um, because, you know, I would have rushed into level three and then I just probably would have been worse than I was. Yeah, yeah that can uh, that time can sometimes help getting to see more stuff. I'm, I'm assuming you were working with a lot of level threes back then, so you were learning quite a lot on the job, or is that how it was yeah. working? Yeah, a lot of great, really good level threes. Um, JJ Healy, uh, Colin Wood, Woody, uh, Jai Milton. Do you know what I mean? They they shaped me. They shaped my oh, I want to say can do attitude. Um, <laughs> there's there's always a way to get it done. It's just how do we achieve that? It's finding the right way to do something. Um, and those back in those days as well, I want to say. Um, People nowadays seem to rely on their course to teach them everything for the level they're going to. Whereas back in those days, it really was everybody was training you on site for your next level. So as a level one, they would give me responsibility for rigging and check it and criticize it and tell me how I could have done better. Um, any kind of rope maneuver, you know, they would ask you, how do you want to get to that site there? And you would have to come up with a plan. Yeah, nice. Uh, um, I love I love that. The mentoring, yeah. you know, that's how it should be. You know, we chatted about that a lot. You know, it seems yeah. to be missing that everybody wants to pull the ladder up and not pass on the skills. But, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, the advantage of being on site uh, with experienced level threes that have been out there. And, you know, back then there would have been, what, 3,000, maybe 4,000 IRATA techs kicking around. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, not a lot of people and realizing that the work's expanding. So, uh, so you got your level two, you were, you were told to sit down and wait another six months. So you got your level two and yep. then, uh, was it, uh, cause back then I'm remembering it was still six months and a thousand hours. Did you dive through to your level three or did you sit on your twos for a while? And sat my two for a year as well. Um, I cannot, I think, I know it was Woody who said he's good enough to do his level three. Um, but I can't remember why I sat in my, my three. I think it might have been I felt I wasn't ready um, because it's, um, it's. I mean, we all feel imposter syndrome every now and then, right? Yep. And I was working with all, all of these amazing level threes and I just never, ever thought that I would be that person. Um, so I think it was me that um, made me wait an additional six months. It might have been because of a job or the way courses were running, but I decided not to. Yeah, fair enough. And where did where did you do your uh, twos and threes? Were you back at Cannes or did you move on to a different location? That was my start of my love affair with Richard McCarty. Um, 
way up in the Black Isle in his old Nissan hat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. In, uh, in the old barn. So I and I remember this because one of the best things I I ever did for me was um allowing you to do your your up to six months early. Um because unfortunately for me, I did my training and assessment in December. So at Richard's old place, I, I don't know if he even still has it, but uh, it was just one of the one of the old hangars on an old airfield in the Black Isle in Scotland, um, on the top of a hill that was windy in December. <laughs> so it was just madness. Uh, you would go in in the morning and there would be snow and ice everywhere, um, and you would just have to do rope access to get warmer. <laughs> and uh, from the stories that I've heard, I never visited the place, but there was a an oil drum with a fire in it and quite a bit of tea yeah. drinking, I believe, just to keep everybody hydrated and warm enough. Is that sort of yeah. how you remember it? Uh, an old port cabin that was split into two. So you had your, as soon as you went in the door, you had uh, all the rope access equipment hanging. And if you went into his little office, it had a big window in it. Um, yeah, he would... He would show you everything. He'd be on the ropes. Uh, God knows how rich, how old Richard would have been in those days, mate. Would he have been late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, I think so. Last yeah. count, I think he was in his... Uh, I saw him a few years ago, and he was in his mid-70s. So, yeah, would have been uh, most probably into yeah. his 60s, yeah. And uh, he would still show you up on the ropes. He would show you up on the ropes, you know. Um, just so strong. Um, great teacher. He would show you everything you needed to do, and then he would run back inside his office with a big gas heater and his cup of tea and shout at you from the window. <laughs> <laughs> Just a great guy. Um, very outspoken guy as well, uh, which is exactly what the, the association needed in its early days. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember a uh, a meeting that happened, an IRATA meeting that he was at. Um, I think it was Charles Cooper who was telling me this. Uh, he was uh, chairing the meeting and somebody had said something, and Richard turned around, and he said, well, that's about as useful as pissing on your chips. So, uh, <laughs> And then the person who was uh, taking the minutes was like, does that need to go into the minutes, or are we excluding that bit? Yeah, he, he, was happy, he was happy to tell people when they were right and happy to tell them when they were wrong, which is, uh, as you're saying, those early days, you needed people to be outspoken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember going to my first ever, uh, what I now know is the re Regional Advisory Committee meeting, but for me, it was my first ever IRATA meeting. Um, this is a few years later when I was employed by EM&I. And they sent me as the rep to the meeting. And the only people I knew were Richard and Sandy Allen. Um, and I sat down, and, or they sat me down in between the two of them and said, pretty much watch this. This is how we do it. And I remember somebody giving a very long talk on, I don't remember what it was about, but giving a very long talk on, a specific robotics subject and uh, Richard just slammed the table that's fucking shite <laughs> <laughs> yep. just decimated the poor guy you know what I mean yeah so uh, so you survived your winter going and doing uh, yeah maybe you should have gone in early and done it in July rather than in December but anyway mm. uh, so you've got your threes are you uh I'm guessing your CV's gone out telling everybody that you're the man to start running crews. Is that sort of where it went? Or did you sort of hang back? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah that's it, really. Um, 
can't remember if it was when I was a two or a three, but I started work with EM&I as a contractor with Georgie Byers as the operations manager. Um, then George took me into the office one day at the end of a job. Uh, George, George or John Wren, can't remember, because back in those days, you would fly back on shore into one of the, at the time, there was only two heliports. Um, and then you would go straight to the Spider's Web, which is a pub in Aberdeen by Dice Railway Station. Um, and then the whole team would go back to the pub and the project manager would meet you, typically buy your lunch, buy your beers, and then you would catch your train home. But I was told to come into the office. So I'd had a few drinks in me at that point. And uh, I was taken in, I remember it was George Byers, said to me, like, you know, do you want a full-time job? Um, and at the time, EM and I only employed team leaders on sites um, and they would use team members as contractors, if that made sense. So, yeah, I was kind of like, wow, I'm going to have to lead people. <laughs> I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm going to have to lead people. It's like, what the fuck? But yeah, that was that was the start of both. Uh, uh, I loved my time at EM&I, but it ended quite contentiously. <laughs> as uh, as it as it can do for many people, uh, uh, we've had a few uh, few people chatting about dealing with the uh, various companies in uh, in uh, that part of the world in the North Sea. You know the um, yeah the love relationship turns into a hate relationship. But so uh, were you? Uh, was this mainly in uh, Scotland and in the North Sea? You were doing all of this, or did you travel to other parts, or where were you? Uh, I I started off when EM and I were where their main focus was on tankers doing um, special surveys or renewal surveys on oil tankers. So that's where I learned how to do those surveys as a team member at first and then a trainee team leader and finally a team leader. Um, I know it's going to sound quick, but it took me three months to get the team leader. But uh, that, again, is testament to how I would always describe EM&I in those early days was an absolutely amazing training company. Um, they would train you in exactly what they needed you to know in one of the most efficient manners I've ever seen a company do. Um, honestly, I can't say enough about it. They had books on it. You had all the standards available to you. It didn't matter how much money they needed to spend. They would spend it on you to get you to the place they needed and uh, including giving you courses. Yeah, and they took a punt on me. They took a chance on me. And of course, back in the early days, if a company took a chance on you, it meant lower rates. So I was quite happy with that because it meant I got to learn something that I could take with me for the rest of my career and have done. Um, and when you are a trainee team leader on these jobs, they give you very strong, very experienced team members who can gently push you in the right direction you know yeah nice now it sounds yes. uh, so it's that mentoring again isn't it that you were talking about earlier the fact yeah. that there and uh i believe that your you know i'll call it your superpower is um is ship surveys you know you've warned me for hours on end telling me about how these things are made and where the ribs are and you know not an area that i've ever worked in um but that seems to be you know your skill that you've carried on through your career which is uh, which is awesome and knowing where it starts that's great because i didn't really know much about that so that's awesome it's good fun really really good fun um the reason i stuck with that kind of work was because it was 
good rope access. Um, there was people in those days, there was people doing piping inspections and all I ever saw was, and again, I did try it, but um, all I ever saw and experienced was back in those days, setting up a tight line through a pipe rack and uh, cows tailing onto it and crawling on your hands and knees. And I just hated it. It was, That wasn't rope access to me. Um, the structural stuff was where it was at, you know, because it was, it was dark, it was oily. Um, it was inside. Yeah, it was, was warmer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was hard work. But um, yeah. And then, you know, but it, it was really rewarding because you got to see stuff go wrong structurally. Um, not all the time. Don't get me wrong. Not everything I went to was a shit show, but uh, typically it's the older boats that you end up going into and discovering huge buckling, cracking, just fantastic stuff, you know? Yeah, nice. So uh, so you're still in Scotland? Because obviously uh, many people will know that you're now a long way from Scotland, uh, down in New mm. Zealand. So how did how did that sort of come about, that you ended up travelling to the other side of the world and where did uh, you travel in between? Well, continuing on that tanker theme, um, Ian and I had a good contract with a tanker company called TK and I can't remember I think they owned about 140 tankers around the world at that point so I started commuting to Fremantle and I would do the tanker trip typically from Fremantle to Borneo to Singapore sometimes on to Korea and America um, and we would carry out the special survey that was required for the vessel. So um, it's a bit like, for those of you who don't know what a ship special survey is, it's a bit like getting a warrant of fitness for your car. It has to be done every five years. Um, yeah, so I did that for two years, pretty much commuted back and forth to Fremantle in Australia for two years. Um, which was hard, really hard, because when you join a boat, they expect you to start working. Um, so we were literally picked up at Perth Airport by a minibus, a team of seven of us normally, picked up with this minibus, taken to the boat, and then the captain would say, your gear's over there. We leave tomorrow, tank entries the following day, crack on. <laughs> that, a little, little, bit, little bit of jet lag going on, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we'd work through it. Um, but great opportunity to travel. I mean, that's kind of at the end, end of it all. Because I think after that, EM and I, EM and I decided that tankers were not the most lucrative due to the five-year cycle. So they started applying all the knowledge that they had from tankers into FPSOs. So goodness me, now if I if I remember rightly, at this time there was about four four FPSOs in the North Sea. So we started winning jobs on there and doing the special survey on FPSOs and that extended out into semi-submersibles, jack-ups, you name it. If it floated, we would do it. Yeah. And awesome. Where, what sort of year are we up to now? Where were you uh, in your career? I'm guessing there would have been a few resets involved. 2006, 2006-ish. Because 2007... I came across to New Zealand for a holiday 
because um, I really liked working for EMI Australia. <clears throat> and I think I'd had one or two jobs off them as well on FPSOs in Australia, early FPSOs in Australia. Um, and they asked me if I would move over this side of the world. Um, no guarantees and all that good stuff, you know. So I went to holiday in New Zealand. Just loved it. Loved it over here. And they uh, took took a year to get my shit together, get enough money. And 2008, I moved across and then started to commute from New Zealand to Australia in 2008. Still working for Ian and I back then? E- contracting at this point, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, on- nice. I've only ever really contracted um, until very, very recently. Yeah, nice. So you... Um... So you're doing the commute, so that would have been, where were you based down in Wellington? Yep. If I, my memory serves me right, so you would have been Wellington over to most probably somewhere on the East Coast and then fly over to Perth. Yeah. Dealing with some jet lag with the time difference? Uh, the way home was the worst. It was all, I always remember the way home being bad because you'd fly, you'd get a midday flight, say, off your rig back into Karatha Airport and... Uh, then you'd be on like a two o'clock flight to Perth, but it would be a midnight flight to Melbourne. And then 7 a.m. from Melbourne to New Zealand. So it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard coming home. Yeah, because that, um, for people who don't know that Perth, the time difference there. So you're on the plane for about three hours, but mm. you land and it's six o'clock in the morning. So you, yeah, you haven't had much chance for some sleep or whatever and then uh, yeah. and then as you say you're then flying over to wellington which is another three and a half hours and the clock moves again um but yeah that's uh, pretty tough was that on were you on sort of swings doing two and two or nah. how was that sort of working nah for? back in those days it was pretty much how long how long can you stay for how, how many weeks do you want work for um yeah it was uh because i remember before i left the north sea they introduced a thing called the vantage card um, so that nobody, you know, it, it sort of was enforced time off back in those days. So if you'd done three weeks work, you would have to have at least, I think in those days it was five or six days off before you were allowed offshore again. And uh, that kind of wasn't the way people worked rope access back in those days. Um, like I remember working with people who I knew I wouldn't see for the whole winter because that was their winter climbing season. You know what I mean? They would they would do yep. rope access in the summer and then they would go to the Himalaya in the winter, uh, vice versa, sorry. Um, but you know what I'm saying. They would, Either summer climbers would go away for the whole summer, winter climbers for the winter. So yeah, um, so back in those days, it was, I moved, again, one of the reasons to move to Australia was they didn't keep track of your time offshore. So you could just go work massive stints and then take six months off. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, um, big days, uh, big weeks offshore. Mm. Um, yeah, I know guys that have done sort of 70, 90 days on platforms. There seems to be uh, a little bit of that going on at the moment. People getting staying on platforms, I know, in Australia because of the COVID situation there. Rather than having rotations, they're just keeping guys out there. So yeah, maybe it's going back to the good old days. Oh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> As long as it's not the good old day money. Yeah, which uh, which <laughs> money do you want? Do you want the uh, the construction uh, offshore construction wages of Australia a few years ago, or back to um, oh. back to the mid nineties, early two thousands? Hmm. I remember when I first started work with Real, 
Um, now we are going back 20 odd years. I've no idea what real pay nowadays, and this isn't a reflection on them. <laughs> but uh, I remember thinking the guys in charge of the jobs were on about 150 pounds a day. And I was just like, one day, one day I'm going to earn that much. Yeah. One, one, day you'll, one day you'll earn that much. Yeah, I'm still trying if I can earn that much. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. One day I will. So um, over this sort of what we got there, sort of fifteen odd years, you've um, you would have done a few resets uh, through there. Obviously, uh, Richard's place because oh, you, you had this love affair. Yep. You uh, changed it to doing it in the summer, I'm guessing, rather than the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I started um, pulling it forward months at a time on each one, and then. Um, we did, were you doing the commute from uh, New Zealand over to do your resets, or how did that sort of work? Uh, that's when I started meeting you, wasn't it? When I moved to I New so. Zealand, 2008. When when did you move Fifth Point in New Zealand? <sighs> yeah, so you were on you were on the first course that I ran in Wellington. Yeah. I had um, yeah. so I'd run some courses in Auckland for um, Goldman. Had got involved, Luke uh, Goldman. Um, mm. When he was he was swinging around on the ropes, he came in and did some courses, and then um, another Luke who was working for them, whose name I can't remember, um, he got in touch and said, "We've got a load of guys down in Wellington. Can you run a course in Wellington?" And as you know quite well, Fifth Point is a lifestyle choice, mm. and so <laughs> Laura, my wife, and I came over, um, right. went That's up right. to the. Uh, we flew into Auckland. Um, Went up to uh, the Bay of Islands, had a bit of a holiday, and then we came back to Auckland, grabbed a, a camper van and threw all the gear in it and then spent a week driving down the North Island, seeing all the bits yeah. and pieces, and then got down to down to Wellington and then set up in Ferg's uh, climbing gym and ran our first course. I think you were relieved that you couldn't believe that you were walking down the hill yeah, to go and do another right. art course rather than having to go somewhere else. <laughs> that's right, dude, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't, I can't say I've ever done an errata course in Australia. No, I've not. So that must have just tied in right with me. Eh? So yeah, yeah, I think it did. You, yeah, because you were looking at, oh, I'm going to fly back to Scotland. I remember having that chat with you. Mm. Going to fly back to Scotland, do the course, and I think you may have had some, uh, if I remember correctly, may have had some interesting trainers over the years, and lots of ego oh. walks into the room and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think you were nervous about that it's like oh god what am i going to have to deal with here but we sort of hit it off and it was like you've been doing this as long as i have let's see what you can do if you want some hard yeah. stuff i can throw it at you um you know and uh and that's how it sort of started yeah talking about those ego trainers i remember walking into an unnamed training facility because they're still in business um unnamed training facility in aberdeen on the monday and i was given an exercise to do and the trainer shouted fail at the top of his voice three times at me um, for each part of the exercise I did. And I just, I came down off the ropes. Uh, I asked him if he had something to prove because it was just, I think it was just me and a heap of level ones. I asked him if he did something to prove and he said, nah, nah, you're just shite. So I just looked at him and I went, right, now be time for your feedback for me. And I told him what I thought of him, walked out the door. And as I walked out the door, I went in the office, girl, and I just said, don't even bother sending me an invoice. <laughs> it's like, I absolutely hate those people. Yep. You, uh, you, you're paying quite a bit of money, especially on this side of the world. You're paying quite a bit of money to uh, to go in there to 
you know, yep. hopefully learn some new skills, you know, even if you're 20 yeah. odd years, you're hoping that you're going to pick up something, you know, whether it's new bits of kit or whatever it might be. But yeah, having the, the people screaming at you um, is, uh, well, your, uh, your ginger personality wouldn't have uh, sat well with that. Would <laughs> no, like I said, I've, uh, I've managed to burn a few bridges in my life with the uh, companies. Um, and it's mostly because I, I do tend to speak my mind. Um, but I've only just learned recently to start speaking it early and phrase it in a nicer way. Um, <laughs> whereas I used to just wait until it was boiling over and then just tell them exactly what I thought of them. But yeah, bad trainers is something I've never loved. And, uh, you know, you were pretty good. You were all right at training. Um, you certainly weren't. Thanks, you certainly weren't the worst I've ever been to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I look, didn't shout foul at you. Yeah, I mean, God, two thousand eight. Uh, I think I'd been level three and then since two thousand. So it would have been two thousand nine. Me and you were together, maybe. So that yep, would have been sounds about right. That would have been my fourth recertification with you at level three. So um, I think you you read me correctly in the way that. Um, I didn't. I, I've never ever wanted to be taught how to pass an assessment. Um, I want. I want to be challenged. Um, like as in being given problems on the ropes and go and solve it, but solve it in a manner that'll allow you to pass. So yeah, you 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 read me pretty right that way, and I loved it. That's where I first met the Singapore special, wasn't it? Yes, I. Uh... I've still, I can still see it in my mind's eye. Uh, you swinging up in the uh, ceiling, effing and cursing, and uh, all going on, solving the problem, telling me that this is ridiculous. Why, why have I got this little amount of equipment? And me taking yeah. carabiners off of you, and you tying cows' tails into anchors. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was good fun because, as you say, all it was was here's the problem. This is all you've got. Um, see what you can do mm. and came up with a solution. There's lots of solutions as people that have listened to the uh, podcast will know about the Singapore special, but it's, um, you know, I could quite easily give you a agree on yeah. and it turns it into a level two exercise, but you know, where's mm. the fun in that, you know? So, um, yeah, being able to, uh, challenge it, it's all sort of gone by the wayside with the, uh, the way that the tax has gone now, but uh, a few people still wander into a training centers and go, can I have a go at this? And I'm like, yeah, mate, here it is. And away you go. So, well, what, one of the th one of the things I do remember from that time is uh, because I don't know if you want to admit this or not, <laughs> but all the rope access courses back in those days, in early New Zealand days, involved going to the pub for a debrief after. <laughs> and I remember sitting with you in the pub, talking, well, pretty much me complaining about how inaccessible Irata is, both on this side of the world. And through my own conception, or in, what's the word I'm looking for? You know what I mean? I didn't feel that they were a, an organization which was doing anything other than providing certification for me. Um, yep. And that's when you said to me, and I won't forget this, but you said, well, if you feel like you want to make a difference, make a difference. Join the club. Become an assessor. And yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the same talk that I had with Carl Raby about five or six years previous to that mm. um you can moan about it all you like it's a trade association if you want to uh if you want to change it you need to get involved and um and you did um that was a bit of a journey that we sort of started together 
um, but like getting you in some training and stuff. Just like back in the old days, though, wasn't it? I mean, I did. You you made sure I was never running out of beer tokens, but we weren't exactly. God, I wouldn't even say it was minimum wage. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, it was, um, I'll teach you how to train. Um, and then when you can train, I'll take you up, train your level, show you how to train level two, then level three, and so on, you know. Um, I loved it. Absolutely loved learning how to train because it, it made me realize how little I could get things across to people, like, Learning how to train shows you how you need to break things down for everybody around you, especially those who don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's uh, I think it makes you a better on-site level three yeah. because you you know taking somebody who's never touched a backup device or a descender and explaining to them how to put it on a rope, you know, mm. the real basics of it, and then all the way through, as you say, to whether it's a Singapore special or rescuing somebody out of the loop, whatever it might be, short link, you know, and um, and then realizing that people, the way that you're trying to teach them doesn't work for them because you need to be more visual or they need to see it written down, whatever their learning style is. And, you know, that's that's why I still do what I do today because that's, to me, that's a fun bit. I'm teaching the same thing, but uh, I need to work out how to get it across to those new individuals that are walking in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I loved that, loved it. Um, and I will say I also loved doing it in the climbing wall um, because it was, I think it was just because it was so much more different to the normal training centres I'd been exposed to in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. good fun. Uh, and as you say, the debriefs around, uh, was it Chicago's, I think was the bar just around the corner? Yes. Um, there, yeah. was a, there was a couple of drinks that happened in there. Um, I think uh, one of my... Uh, one of my fondest memories back there, I believe you were there as well, where uh, we had uh, Declan Harper mm. was was doing his threes. I think he must have been maybe 20, maybe 21, if he was lucky. Looked about 14. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, he, and he had to... Uh, he had to carry his passport with him because he couldn't get into any bar. And, um, yeah, walking around the corner, he just got his level threes, I believe, and he's strutting around and... Uh, and he needed ID to get in, and he left it in the car, so he had to do the walk of shame to yeah. go and get, but, get ID. But do you remember training him? And I don't know if this was training him in his two or his three, but um, now we didn't do this because it would be irresponsible, but um, he went out the night before, and he went hard out the night before. And then when he was up doing a rescue on the ropes, yeah, he needed to throw up, so he got a bucket passed up to him on the ropes. <laughs> but the bucket had its own rope. Yep, by, uh, I think that was on a Thursday morning. He may have gone out drinking with unknown individuals on the Wednesday yeah. and uh, and tried to keep up with them. And <laughs> as you say, um, I believe it was one of those big black bins that you get and we made him clip it to his harness for the rest yeah. of the day just in case. Because, <laughs> you know, you've got, to put, uh, you've got to put systems in place. You've got to. Lad. You've got to. Yes. He's over in Canada yeah. now. He's a father. Yeah. Oh, man. He is, yeah. I was chatting to chatting to him a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago now. But yeah, he's over there uh, working out where he's going to settle down and uh, if he's going to be Canada or Australia. But yeah, he's uh, he's still the 18-year-old uh, level one that I remember all those yeah. years ago. So you know. I, th I think he was my first one to three. I think he yeah. was training people from one all the way through to three. I'm not sure. 
So uh, you'd done some training. You'd uh, got you. It would have been the tea badge back then, I'm guessing. Yep. Yep. Got your teas, and then, um, well, obviously you were an assessor. So uh, how was how was that journey? How did that go for you? Uh, did what I believe is the first structured assessors course. I think it was a bit of an experiment at the time, wasn't it? Because um, there was it was seen that there's a necessity. I don't know who saw it. If it was a committee or if it was Irata, you know, like the office itself, but it was seen that uh, the assessment could wasn't standardised. So that was the beginning of standardisation on the assessors, was it not? I don't know. You'd, you'd need to tell me. Yeah. So uh, I believe. Uh... Mentioned him again, Carl Raby was uh, chairman or whatever involved back then. And the first sort of attempt at it were, happened in the US. They realized they needed more assessors. Right. And so a few of the old timers went over there and, and basically shot from the hip and came up with a structure for it. Mm. Um, and then um, and then it sort of got a bit more structured. And yeah, it was the first um, first time it was run down in Australia. I'd been involved in a in a couple of them and then it was like okay lee away you go um have a go at running this with um yeah i think chebby chebby rostenberg was uh he was, yeah. was over he was yeah yeah he was he was involved as well you know we had to wheel out some of the old boys to tell us how it was back in the day um i i enjoyed so, it uh, i really enjoyed it it was uh, i would say uh probably one of the Oh, I want to say best fun courses, but you always had sort of Damocles axe hanging over your head. Will you will you make it? Won't you make it? You know what I mean? Um, you didn't yep. know if you were going to pass, but I really enjoyed it because you know I'm a geek for theory. Um, and the exam I was given was just fantastic. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, yeah, did the exam. Absolutely smashed it out of the park, even if I do say so myself. Because it just, it, I think the first question was explain the relationship between rope access and laws, regulations, standards, etc. in your country. And I, I must have taken about four pages of A4. Yep, I remember reading that one. Um, yeah, that went on a bit um, compared to <laughs> compared to other people's. What do you mean it went um, on? And a no, bit? what do you mean? And and nobody, uh, <laughs> nobody. All of the guys who were reading it didn't know anything about the Australian and New Zealand standards and regulations. So there's just pages and pages of all this stuff that nobody knew about. Because obviously the questions have been developed for the courses they run in the UK. So yeah. the assessors obviously understood what was going on. And then you came in and went, there you go, there's there's half a ream of paperwork for you to read through. So yeah, it was good. <laughs> yeah, um, that started my love affair really with um with the New Zealand system that rope access is to be conducted under. Um, I, I will call it a love affair, but it's more of a love-hate affair. <laughs> um, in some places, it's so specific that it just hurts. And then in other places, it's so lapse that you're just, you know, you want to say, why why did you not adopt what others are doing? <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah they, uh, they seem to want to run down their own path rather than looking outside of their borders in my opinion of uh, what other associations or other parts of the world are doing and bringing that on and it seems to be that it's uh, you know especially with like some of their assessments and whatever how hard can we make this mm, mm. rather than rather than let's treat treat people you know good skills which you know it was like that back in Arata in the early days but they haven't seemed to sort of moved forward from that yeah 
Yeah. Um, but that's that's maybe another full discussion for another day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think so. Um, so uh, so you got through the course. Yep. Um, if, if I remember correctly, uh, you pretty much got the sack from fifth point the moment that you passed. I did. Yes, that's right. Because uh, you can't you can't get pay from somebody and assess them at the same time. So fair play. Um, but I think at the time I was still contracting offshore. Um, I was doing the training in my time off, wasn't I? And, yeah, I think uh, so, yeah, for a little bit. So I'm trying to work out when I actually started working in New Zealand. Um, I think off and on throughout all this period, I was working on an FPSO or a couple of them in New Zealand and then still flying across to Oz to work, um, which, you know, was different. Um, as we've briefly touched on there, the regulation is so completely different between the two countries. I think one of the, one of the things that we can't continue on without mentioning is the fact that Australia has NOPSEMA, which is a fantastic organisation um, and has a lot of clout behind it. So all the Australian oil companies, uh, they, they watch what they're doing whereas New Zealand doesn't necessarily have an Opsima with as much clout. Um, they do have WorkSafe, and WorkSafe do their level best to ensure there's no harm to anybody. It, it's not quite the same system. So New Zealand offshore work is a bit like the North Sea when I left it. Um, it's Yeah, it's a bit run by the seat of your pants sometimes. Um, but it's good fun. It was nice to go back and see that sort of thing, you know. You definitely learn how to rely on yourselves as a team, which is brilliant. Um, one of my, I would say, my best outcome in my life is Charles Loder and teaching Charles everything I knew um, in New Zealand and teaching him how to look out for others um, when it comes to your own safety, you know. Yeah, nice. Back to that mentoring again, Mike. Yeah, Absolutely. And passing on of information, I'm a, a huge believer in that um, you should never be in a place where nobody can work without you. Never, ever. Um, you need succession planning in every job at every level that you're doing. Somebody should be able to take over because you're not all that. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're just not. Um, if I ever go on a job and no job could survive it without me, then I don't want to be there. Yep, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, so that sort of uh, obviously you've been assessing. You were working in the, the offshore in Australia, and New Zealand, um, and then um, and then COVID turned up. Yeah, how did that change your world? Because as we know, New Zealand's had some pretty hard closed borders and stuff. So, what's happened in the last sort of year and a half? Well, I came, I finished a job for Vertec. Uh, oh, I can't remember when I came back, but. When I'd came back, when I'd come back to New Zealand, I think I was told to go into self isolation at home. So I did. You know me, I love a rule, love a rule. <laughs> so I I didn't leave the house, um, thinking that everybody else wouldn't leave the house either. You know, um, so I didn't leave the house at all because I fucking love a rule and I hate people. So that was just brilliant. I've spent my whole life practicing for a lockdown, and. Uh, after my two weeks isolation, I got out for a day and then the announcement was made that that's it. We're locking the entire country down for a month. 
which I think went into six weeks, did it? I'm not sure. So again, absolutely loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely loved it. Just sat at home, um, became an absolute global superstar in iRacing. <laughs> Just totally immersed myself in VR racing. It was fantastic. Um, I'm not even sure if Barbara saw me for weeks at a time sometimes. <laughs> and yeah, um, when the lockdown ended, came out of that and just, we, we made the decision then because at that point I had been working offshore for 22 years and we made the decision as a couple that neither of us wanted me to go away anymore. Um, I'd started falling out of love with the constant travel um, because I was oh, minimum six months away at any given time. Um, you know, like as in three weeks on, three weeks off, but I was never home for more than six months a year. So, yeah, we, we worked through the finances and she went, I can support us. So I thought, yeah, well, I can be a full-time assessor. It's uh, it's like a job. And racing driver. And racing driver, yeah, but I don't get paid for that. <laughs> somebody will, Somebody famous will listen to you and they'll give me an invite to race their real race car for them. Wicked. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. So you've been uh, obviously in New Zealand and you're just assessing and um, following all of the COVID rules of not leaving your house by the sounds of it. Ah, we're, it's New Zealand, dude, because we went hard early and um, we don't have the problems that Australia does have. So, um, yeah, I can't remember. I think it's been 140 odd days since we had any case out in the open. Um so New Zealand, it's life is back to normal in New Zealand. It's just with certain, you know, like there's hand sanitizer everywhere and people use it. Um, anytime you go on public transport or on flights, you wear masks, you know yourself. It's all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah. the people in New Zealand really have taken it to heart. Um I'm not going to say the people of Australia are any different. They're, it's just different politicians, and uh, who can be bothered with them? Um, I hear you. So uh, so what are we at? 20, 22, 23 years? We'll call that nearly half of a lifetime. Yeah. Um, of, uh, as you said, working offshore, being yeah. away for six months of the year, we'll call it, um, for a long time. In all of that, mm. what would you say has been the best job or jobs, I won't limit you to one that you've worked on. And why was it the best job? Early job uh, was in Holland, my first year as a contractor. Because I was a level two at the time, we were working up jack-up legs, changing out the deep well tracks throughout the entire length of the jack-up legs. And it was the first time I'd ever been at any real height. It was amazing. 150-odd um, metres up, looking out across all of Holland because it's just flat in it um, <laughs> and because I was a level two I was given so much more responsibility by my level threes and they, they really pushed me to learn um, it was the first time I'd ever really seen level threes push back on clients as well um, for safety sake you know um, for example they told us it was taking too long for us to come down and go back on the site for tea breaks. So they said, the client said, don't have tea breaks. You can now only have lunch. And we're cutting your lunch from an hour down to half an hour. 
So we started smoking up the leg and they said, you can't do that. So we came down, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was, it was, I was really shown how to handle people back in those days. Um, so I loved yeah. it for that. So you can, you can take our freedom, but you can't take our smoke out. Is that pretty much what Pretty it much, bro. <laughs> um, and it was explained to me then that, um, you know, we're not going to be arseholes about this, but you have to realise we get rest for a reason. And, you know, if you're giving that rest to somebody who works in an office, why would somebody who's working physically and climbing 100-odd metres every 20 minutes, why would they not require physical rest so yeah it was yeah. that was when yeah the whole thing started coming together you know it's more than just great fun is there any other jobs i would boost back to oh like i don't want to say every job's a favorite job because there's been a few absolute dogs but you know you kind of you learned something from every one of them didn't you um well i'm going to be a bit specific with you because i know that you have done at least I know of one project that you've done on shore mm. <laughs> um, in in New in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Um, working on some steel structure in oh. uh, I believe it was in Wellington. Yeah, it um, was. Thankfully, uh, it's not ha- there. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, would you like to enlighten people about your onshore project in New Zealand? <clears throat> so, when I first moved across to New Zealand, and I was. Well, I say when I first moved across, it probably wasn't. It was probably when I was doing training with you because, yeah, it must have been because I'd realized at that point I'd spent my whole life offshore. And I, if you were to put me next to a city worker, next to a geo guy and asked us to rig stuff, I would probably be the fucking worst because offshore, you know, it's like what I use as an anchor. Oh, let's use that big handy beam over there. Do you know what I mean? It's it's very easy to find your anchor points, but can be quite hard and dangerous to get to the location. So I thought, I'll try doing some onshore work because I really do need to work on my anchor game, you know? And so I've worked for a local Wellingtonian company. Um, said to them, I'm still working offshore, but I said to them, you know, if you ever need a site supervisor for anything, um, just give us a shout, eh? I'm at, these are my home dates. So they gave me a shout for this job on what used to be the Wellington bungee. So it was one of those, one of those upward bungees, you know, where you sat sat in a, like a roll cage ball, and then they stretched the bungee out, and then they just let go of the ball, and it would boing everywhere. Yep. And uh, thankfully, the Wellington bungee is no longer there, but uh, it had a bit of a shocking safety record. I believe at one point prior to us doing the structural inspection, I believe they'd actually snapped one of the sides of the bungee. Could um, <laughs> you? Thankfully, it happened during their morning checks and not when somebody was in it. Could you imagine flying around on one bungee in a steel ping pong ball? Um, so we went up this and... Like, first thing that I'm amazed about is how much easier it is to communicate with your mates when you're on shore. Because it's like, I was shouting across to this boy, Jeff, and he was like, just use your phone, Dick. I was like, oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'd use phones here, eh? And uh, I said to him, like, 
fucking hell, mate. This is like, this is fucking, there's this, the rust that's up here that has just been painted over. And uh, yeah, he just, so we went, we came down, we had a bit of a con flub and I was told just fucking leave it. Eh? And so, so my, you know, I'm peeking a little bit because I know a little bit about steel at this point, you know. I was just like, nah, mate, leave it. An engineer will have dealt with it, surely. So on to the next job. And he took me up the side of one of Wellington's skyscrapers. And I think we were on the 35th floor. Um, jump off over the side and we're changing out a double glazed office window. And that's when I just went, yeah, this this job's not for me, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, I can't remember what floor we were at. It could have been 28. God knows. He gave me, because obviously I'm the I'm the new guy, eh? I'm green as fuck. And Jeff gave me the top of the window. So all we had to do, right, was unscrew the stuff off the outside of the window. And then we would tilt the window slightly back, tilt it across its plane, and pass it into the glazers. I was like, oh, ah, yeah, no worries. How fucking hard could this be? Not realising that I hadn't clipped myself off to the fucking structure. Because, you know, no one told me to. So the minute I took the top of this fucking window, right, I'm maybe Jeff's head is about level with my ass, you know, and I'm, I've got this one window sucker. And the minute the window came out, I just swung out, totally swung out, because I'm on a giant pendulum. So I've got this window resting on my forearms, which are resting on my legs. And I'm looking down through myself at people below me. I'm just like, oh, this is fucked. And then the fucking window sucker starts moving. And I said to Jeff, here, this thing's fucked. And he goes, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. It's got a pinhole in it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having to use my right thumb, to, you know, to push the plunger to keep it sucking. And Jeff's shouting at me at the top of his voice, just push it in. I was like, fucking push it in. This fucking thing's pushing me out. I'm going to die. <laughs> anyway, we got the window in after not so long. And uh, yeah, I just, that was it. I was just like, yeah, onshore can go get fuck. It's hard. <laughs> I want to do offshore. I know what offshore is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So, um, so you ran away and hid on some platforms and some, FPSOs and carried on rope access. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I thought, uh, I thought the. Uh, I always remember the uh, reverse bungee. I, I can remember when it was decommissioned and it was still there. I think we went out for some drinks mm. when I was in Wellington, and uh, and you walked past it, and I was like, oh, "There's a job you worked on," and you were just shaking your head. Fucking obviously, with your your experience of uh, steel work and how it and standards and how it's supposed to work. Yeah, um, interesting. Oh, oh just. <laughs> Just yeah, mate. Yeah, never ever go on a bungee if you haven't looked at it yourself. That's what I do now. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Extreme sports of New Zealand. Um, recently, um, Vertic put me across to Korea for the Impex projects, um, for the baseline surveys of the two oil rigs, the FPSO and the the semi sub. That was astounding. Um, myself and Murph, Derek Murphy, were leading the team. Um, God knows how many people. 
I think there was, it was only ever 14 at any one time, but there was about 30 people rotating through. Um, that was phenomenal, just getting to see how. Because I I, up to that point, I'd only ever worked in servicing dockyards, you know, where they take boats in, give them new bits and send them away again. But this, this was the first dock I'd ever been to that was building from brand new. Um, so was that the, because uh, I've been over to South Korea, so that would have been in Busan, I'm guessing. Was that? Um, yeah, Goji. Uh, Goji the, Island, the, yeah. The, yeah, the, the Samson or the, is there a Samson and a Hyundai shipyard there, I believe? DSME. Over uh, DSME and SHI, yeah. Samsung Heavy Industries and Daewoo. Um, both, yeah. both places. Um, that was just fantastic. Um, was it like uh, working offshore, but you get to go back to a normal onshore accommodation? Is that sort of how that was working? Exactly, yeah, exactly. We, we all had apartments. Um, we were given a per diem, but we still had to look after our pretty much our own, food, our own breakfast and dinner. We could get lunch in the yard if we wanted it. Um, so we had to look after our own meals, our own washing, cleaning, everything. It was almost as if you lived there. Yeah, nice. Um but I ended up doing some quite long swings um, for about three months at a time. Uh, and then I came home once, but it was an absolute, again, a nightmare of a journey. Maybe a two-hour flight to Japan, and then was it 12-odd hours? Japan, Auckland, back to Wellington. So, you know, like a week, even two weeks off, you're so much your time is cut by the travel itself. Yep. Um, so Vertec, hats off to them. Pete Toz, he did me a massive favour, um, flew Barbara out to Japan, and we met in Japan and had a holiday um, over there. And that that was just so much easier, you know. Barbara loved it. She got to see Japan. I loved it because it was just a two-hour flight away. Yeah, no, so that would have been up in Seoul, I'm guessing. You would have head up to there and uh, ran around. No, no, Busan. Busan, we okay. could, uh, yeah, it was just, we were maybe, Koshi Island is just a tunnel to the mainland, to Busan, so it was maybe an hour and a half drive or something. Yep. Um, a lot of, I, I took a lot, Murph and myself made the decision to take a lot of Kiwis across with us, um, because there is, I think it's worth mentioning on here, there's a lot of New Zealand technicians, some incredibly clever people living in New Zealand who work on a near continual basis in Australia. Um, so I kind of feel for them at the moment because obviously it's very hard to go back and forth to Australia with bubbles and bubbles bursting and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure how many are going to remain in the industry. Um, I have been hearing recently that the Perth industry is starting to struggle a little for all its jobs that it's got going on. Uh, I've no, yeah, I've no yeah, idea there's... if that's true or not. Yeah, there um, people are travelling over there. You know, uh, Jackie Dodd, who you know, she's uh, she's she's basically jumped over there, but she's got she's set up that she can stay when she's doing her swings or whatever. And um, uh, Damo uh, Damien Dean, he's just run over there. He was planning on coming back to Queensland or New South Wales, but then we've borders opening and closing in australia you know mm. you know uh, wa beautiful one day close the next type thing it's uh so a lot of people are either having to stay over there or they're just you know chancing it and if things change they're having to move quick and that's just within the country so internationally uh you know 
Dan Martin, he moved over to WA because uh, he was doing the commute from Wanaka. So it's, uh, it's it's been interesting for individuals or very trying for individuals, you know. Are they separating from family? Are they, you know, what are they doing? So it's, uh, and as you say, it's get, it's getting busy over there again. So so there's a lot of lot of projects going on. Um, my mate Murph, he, I think he was over in WA for about seven months um, doing, a, wow. doing a three on three off, you know, but, and that was him away from his family. Um, yeah, I, I can't see me doing that anymore. So I'm, I'm really pleased that we've got the option to allow me not to, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. And hat, again, hats off to Vertec. They're still giving me, they're still giving me work from home. If you like, a couple of super interesting projects coming up that we're, we're working through with them. Um, they've just finished, so I'm hoping for phase two to come in shortly. And uh, yeah, oh, that's cool. Mm. Is that you with your uh, your pre-mentioned superpower of knowing uh, more about boats and how they're put together than yeah. anybody else? Yeah, it is. Yeah, no. it is. Um, I think what's better, mm. what's it's worth a mention anyway is uh, like throughout all this time. So if ever since CM and I, it was people who knew special surveys or how to do ship surveys was always through word of mouth. And uh, that's how you got your job, you know. You would have your UT qualification, MPI, DIPEN, but it was word of mouth. And then it was a few years ago, especially when I was in Australia, um, and it's like the old, it's like when I first started with the old painting days, you know, like we need a rope access painter. And everybody in rope access would say, I'm one, <laughs> you know, because you once did your own room. Yeah. Um, they got rid of that. And now structural surveys are facing that same problem in that anybody with a UT ticket says, I can do it. Um, whereas the reality is it's a whole separate skill. It's not UT. It's knowing where to do it. So myself and a few others noticed this and we sort of sat down and went, what can we do about it? Because there's no real qualification. So, yeah, we picked out some courses. Um, I think there were six of us all up. And we started paying. We would all get together and we would pay. Um, I remember one of the last ones we did for was a DNV course. And it was all about repairing of grounded vessels or ship repairs, things like that. Um, so we contacted DNV directly. I think DNV wanted $16,000 to send as an instructor. So, you know, we split that six ways, paid for a classroom for a week, and we took the instructor over. My company sponsored the instructor, took him over on, a, on an educator's visa for a week. And that's, you know, that's how you get it done, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, if, if I had a message for anybody, it was get together with your mates and sort it out yourselves. Um, if Australia or New Zealand doesn't have what you're looking for, get a group of you together and organise it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good advice. I think that uh, nicely brings me on to my uh, my favourite question. Um, you, uh, you're you old enough to remember it, so uh, I'm going <laughs> to get the DeLorean. Yeah. DeLorean's coming in. Uh, you're going to jump in it and you're going to be – screeching back to you've just been handed your however many thousands of pounds go and find it from the british government go and find yourself a new job you're standing there just about to do your level one what piece of advice is the long in the tooth experienced assessor mike mcdonald going to tell this young spotty ex-squatty what piece of advice would you have for him 
uh, fuck rope access, go to university. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, right. Uh, That's not what I would say to myself. Um, Find a specialty. Find a specialty and do that, especially knowing what the industry is like nowadays. Um, If you find that specialty, try and become the best within that and you'll be all right. Um, there's so many people nowadays get their level one because it's something to do because they think they'll get work from it and that just puts that uh, just puts that person in a bracket where they're almost they're almost gonna fail because there's so many others doing it so find something you're passionate about and see if you can do it on ropes yeah nice and i think you've uh i think you managed to do that finding you uh you know, your passion for uh, these surveys and uh, and how that all works. And then, as you say, uh, you needed to upskill. So you uh, you grabbed a load of guys and made it happen. You know, New Zealand's a long way from a lot of these courses. So yeah. definitely a smart move with that and um, bring the guys in, get the course. And then uh, <clears throat> and now you're getting to pretty much do the same job, but you you can put the computer down and stick on your virtual reality goggles and go for a drive by the sounds of it. So uh, hats, off, hats off to you, sir. Well, look, even the VR gaming came about from work um, because we were, we were discovering that um, some of our clients couldn't, we couldn't have phone conversations with our onshore integrity client because their, their integrity management was all through top sides, but the structure, they kind of get bundled into that as well. And, it was a necessity for us to go, right, we need to discuss in technical terms what has gone wrong and what needs to be done. And those poor people who are onshore um, have been, you know, because they've got no real exposure to what we're doing, um, they would get lost easily. So uh, VR came about when uh, I think it was Oculus released the Go headset at first because it was only a couple of hundred dollars. So we started taking um, 360-degree photos. You know, you just—it's not even something you need to be computer literate about. These cameras that have got 280-degree lenses on it, and they stitch the photo automatically. So we'd send we'd send it to the client. They'd upload it into their VR headset, and then they could literally sit at the phone while talking to you and look at exactly the same thing that you're talking about. And that is worth its weight in gold. So the use of technology, I I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, it just made my life so much easier. And so you had to go and buy yourself a headset as well because you were loving it so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so is that is that something that you're doing now on the other side? If you're you're in New Zealand, mm. are you hooking up with guys in in tanks offshore, or is that no? Um, I can't say too much about the stuff that I'm working on now, um, but suffice to say it is uh, technology-based and it will certainly go a long way to making people's lives easier. Um, and it's phenomenally interesting. So, you know, just a guy who started off doing things offshore, um, people now look at me like I'm a, uh, like I'm a real adult. <laughs> and maybe one day you're going to earn that 150 pounds a day that those level threes were earning yeah i am still waiting like still waiting <laughs> yeah awesome but um yeah 
Well, that's uh, that's all I've got. Is there anything else you want to want to tell the uh, listeners, or anything you want to share? Any pearls of wisdom? Mm, pearls of wisdom. Uh, not all level threes are experts at what they do. You'll always know a bad level three because he won't listen to you. <laughs> um, what else, mate? It's all about ego with me. Yeah, don't don't be that person with an ego. Um, always be willing to train somebody. Pass your knowledge on, and let's let's dedicate this this podcast to Tom Arnold. He'll be sorely missed. Just remember, there's dangers in this job. Yeah, well said, Mike. Well said, definitely. So, uh, thanks again for taking the time, mate. Um, it's uh, it's awesome to chat with you. Obviously, we've spent uh, a few evenings chatting with each other and uh, over the years, but um, sharing your story. Uh, as I've uh, I've said to you, a few people that have mentioned your name and requested it. I did say to him, "Would you want to listen to that idiot for?" But here we are <laughs> doing it anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Thanks for taking the time, my friend. That was awesome. You're greatly. Cheers, bye. Cheers. Well, thanks again, Mike, for taking the time to sit down with us and sharing your story. As I said, a few people have reached out and said they wouldn't mind hearing how you got into rope access. Uh, thanks for sharing. That was brilliant, as always. Great to catch up with you. For everybody listening in, if you can do us a favour and uh, share this podcast with your friends, that would be awesome. Obviously, these things are free, but it's great if you can share it with people. That's the only payment that I ask for, really. Reach out to us on Facebook, Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. Send us a message. Happy to chat with people about whatever they want to talk about. If you've got ideas of what we should be talking about, definitely let us know. Always open to that. But anyway, for now, stay safe. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers.